The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to Identity Matters Podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your host. I want to welcome our online listeners. This is very exciting that we are starting a brand new series. That new series we are calling True Grace. We'll quote a friend that I've been in dialogue with for some time, but most recently about the term true grace. Why are you using the term true grace? Why don't you just stick to the term grace? Whereas the term true grace is not differentiated in the Word of God. Well, the problem with that is, is that we have a grace that is in the world today that is not true grace. So we need to take a handful of messages And we really need to talk about the true grace that God and Jesus Christ and all of the teachers in the Word of God were communicating to us about. The abuse of grace is a big problem in the world today. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is the whole idea of the semantic gyrations. In other words, the terminology, the definitions, the associations with this particular word, grace. So it really is sad to me we actually have to do a study on grace. And I can see a study on universalism because... You know, we learned from testimonies that we received that a lot of people were just unaware what universalism was and they started jumping out of it right and left when they started hearing about it. They started talking to their pastors and saying, do you know that our church is actually into universalism? And so there have been pastors that have been touched because of a congregational member taking the time to study and discover what universalism is. But to study grace... To dice up the word grace when that is the simplest word in the New Testament? The simplest word. Do you remember when Paul was suffering with a demonic attack? And he pleaded three times. The actual scripture says that there was a messenger of Satan. What's a messenger of Satan? Yeah, a demon. I can hardly get pastors to confess to me what that is. Well, I've never really thought that through. What's a messenger of Satan? It's in every translation. NIV, New American, King James, New King James. They all keep that one title intact. A messenger of Satan. There's no other way to say it. What is it? And they're just not sure. They want to pin it down to be Paul was being afflicted by a demon. Because what that says is that that was under God's sovereign plan to buffet him. Buffeting comes from an Old Testament pictorial concept of taking a rock and sanding, scraping down, getting rid of the rough edges by using a rock, 
take that into the spiritual analogy of the rock of our salvation. And God using the very life of Christ to sand off to buffet things that shouldn't be there. That's what Paul was faced with. Paul, who was known by the demonic world. Remember when that one guy was trying to cast out a demon? And the demon said, I know Jesus Christ, and I know Paul, but who are you? Now here is a preacher, a teacher, that is known in a realm that you and I don't want to look at. Thank God. So here he, he's at this moment in his ministry. And he says that he is, that a messenger of Satan, a demon, has been sent to him to buffet him, to stop him from bragging, exalting himself. Paul has said many times that his greatest weakness is bragging. Bragger, bragger. Can you imagine where Paul came from being literally the most educated person on the face of the earth? They didn't come any more educated than where Paul came from. Six years of age, they started training him in the scriptures. And he grew up with like a royalty of knowledge. He would be what we would classify today as a Stephen Hawkins, but on the spiritual side. You can better believe that he was gaining the attention of the evil world even as he was growing up. If you think that Satan has not got your children figured out by him watching how the Holy Spirit and angels are protecting that young person, then you don't understand. You're stuck in your ill humanness. They see a world of God preserving and protecting and growing up children to become great leaders for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they freak out. But yet they can't do anything unless God gives them permission. And here Paul is faced with this moment of being a messenger of Satan was sent. See, God was in charge of this whole moment. Well, I can't say Paul was like me. I have to say I am wanting to be more and more like Paul if I was to pick a human. But see, I'm the type of guy that prays about something once. It drives my, my precious wife crazy. I pray about something once and I don't pray again about it. It's kind of rare. And a lot of times I do pray about something again because someone's listening and they need to hear it. But I am so into if I say it, pray it, believe it, I am going to leave it at the feet of my Savior. And I believe Paul was like that. Because it says that Paul prayed three times that it may depart from him. Well, fast Paul, with that kind of an affliction, as most body members in Christ Jesus do, is they would pray every hour about it. So if you're one of those believers who is constantly praying about the exact same thing, and you're actually confessing that your faith is not in action, God's okay with it. He is. If you're knocking on God's door over and over and over and over and over and over again, when He is a sovereign God that says, I'm listening. Just believe. But Paul's asking the third time. Third time is not very 
many times. And then there's this holy hush. That scripture has been on my heart. I have prayed through it so many times. I have diced and sliced. I can almost see this moment in my mind. There's this holy hush. And if you guys are into the red letter edition, and if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to find something quite curious. 91 years after Jesus died, and something very unique happens. What happens? He speaks. I think if Jesus is going to arrive and have a little talk with Paul, maybe he'd hang out for at least five minutes. But he didn't. I counted it. I could say the verse in five seconds. And what is that? For my grace is sufficient. As some translations put it, you, Paul. For my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power is perfected. In your weakness. Okay, so here's our foundation of where we're going to start today, is that statement. Now those of you who are quite familiar with this passage, you know it goes on into Paul immediately. It didn't take 12 hours of prayer. It didn't take 12 weeks of a Bible study. It didn't take a couple years for him to adjust to this, this new knowledge The way that it was written to us is that it was embraced instantly, which tells me this about Paul, which tells me this of why he was known in the demonic world, is he heard God and embraced God instantly. And it shook the foundation of the spiritual world. The spiritual world knew that this was a man who believed immediately on hearing the voice of God. So God literally has Jesus show up 91 years after the death, show up and make a statement. So Paul said, okay, therefore, I'd rather boast about my infirmities that the power of God will be known. Oh, he's not done. Now the the concept and belief and doctrine that shook my foundation, the grace statement from God was a huge blessing. But for Paul to say, therefore, I'd rather boast about being weak, broken down. What was this demonic messenger doing to Paul? Some say he had the constant flu. Some say that He had a lung disease. Some say that he... It doesn't matter. What mattered is he immediately heard by the hearing of his ears, embraced. And it came to its Godological conclusion that, therefore, I'm going to turn my bragging into a positive attribute of God. And I'm going to boast about being afflicted. I'm not going to name it and claim it and stab it and slab it and rebuke the devil. I mean, this guy was known in the demonic world and he didn't go toe-to-toe with Satan to battle this weakness. He embraced it. He went on to say, as you are probably reading now, those of you who are following this passage, he went on to say, Therefore, I am well content with what's the list that you're seeing right there. 
Almost every translation says it the same way. Therefore, I'm well content with insults, weaknesses, weaknesses persecution, persecution stress, stress, difficulties. difficulties. I want my international listeners to listen very carefully. Unless you live in America, there is no way you're going to understand what I'm about to say. But if you somehow could just rest your mind enough to hear the words and at least pray for us. We live in a prosperous country that is able to fix the fix that God's got fixed on us to get us fixed from always fixing ourselves. We have money. We have churches on every corner. We have the most fluid literature publishing in the entire world of Christian literature. We throw the word grace around like it is a glass of water. We are spoiled rotten spiritually. For us to embrace weakness, to brag about our weakness, to be well content with being stabbed, shot, persecuted, slapped, spit on, to be well content, well, I went and did a little Hebrew, pictorial Hebrew, on the words well content. Those of you, my Hebrew friends and buddies, you know that the Greek needs to be taken back to not modern Hebrew. It has to be taken back to pictorial Hebrew to get the understanding of the New Testament. And here is what well content means. It is sitting in a domain or a tent from the Latin that has holes in it. You're sitting in a tent where the the elements are blowing through and you're cold and you're... To be well content means these circumstances no longer are affecting me. So to be well content with being stabbed and shot at and spit on and slapped and kicked because of the name of Jesus. To be weak with whatever this demonic affliction is that he is suffering with. To be distressed on a daily basis, whether he's shipwrecked or whether he is beaten times without number, which is in the same book you're reading. In fact, this is his conclusion of the previous chapter of him going through that list. And he's saying, that is, that is nothing compared to my burden of the church. That's what I live with every day of my life, is the burden of the church who's getting sucked in to a demonic doctrine of grace. And I hope you stay with our series long enough that you listen very carefully to what I'm saying. Demons are using the word grace like it's a glass of water to quench the thirst of someone who feels guilty. And all that's going to do is turn our church into being filled with people who no longer know if they're male or female, if they're saved or unsaved, or if they can hear God or not. My international listeners, you need to understand something. The United States of America is known for quoting humans more than any country in the entire world. My pastor said, I read a book and the author said, 
Whereas some of you who are in countries that the only one you can quote is Jesus Christ or the Word of God directly. Whenever I have a counselee or a disciple say something like, well, Finney said, Finney said, Finney said, Finney said, I'm going, oh boy, here we go. The very ones who put you on the pedestal are the ones who kick the pedestal out from underneath you. That is America. You see, we're waiting for our leaders to fall. The problem with that, our dear international listeners, is it's going to put us in last place in the entire world. We're going to be known for being liars. We're going to be known for being a prosperous society that is rich, as Jesus said to one of the seven churches. You are rich, but you have no faith. We're in trouble. And I do believe it's because of what the demonic forces have done with this word, precious word, called grace. As this little video showed us, that true grace covered all these sins. Death, immorality, whatever the case may be. That is true. If we view grace as a person... But see, if there's people sitting in churches and they're talking about grace, 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 but it's not really covering them because they're unsaved. So, listeners, listen to this statement very carefully. Here is my burden that this new movement of grace worldwide, it is literally dissolving the conversion exchange point of salvation. People are sitting in churches, reading books, reading devotionals, and they think they're okay because they, they got this view of this, this twisted view of grace as a license. That Jude, it may be a small book, but he's one of the guys I want to meet. It didn't take a lot of words with Jude to say some profound things that I have used for many years in writings. Simple, profound statements. He's a bottom line kind of guy. And when he made that warning, gave that warning to us about grace, of people coming into the church, people coming in through our books, people coming in through our radio programs, people coming in through whatever and talking about this form of grace. I can't think of a better way for the devil to dissolve the exchange life point of the old for the new than to feel like you're covered already with universal grace. You won't get saved. There's no need for you to be saved. People need to hear the consequences of the law. You're going to hell if you do not receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your life. They need to hear it. There needs to be an entrance point and an exit point. The old man's being taken out. The new man's being put in. It's got to be a point of exchange of salvation. And this new form of grace is dissolving it. It even makes me mad as I talk to certain people. 
And that's why I call them gracilistic. Who would like to come and read for us John chapter 1, verses 10 through 17? He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, That he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And the fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth. You may be seated. Okay, someone want to just feed back to us real quick. That'll get us launched on our, our little study of this word. What was said there again about grace being grace, grace upon, what was that again? Okay, so the Old Testament, even though I know there's going to be some listeners that are going to challenge me on this, that'd be 602-292-2982, or you can send me an email at drfinney, that's D-R-P-H-I-N-N-E-Y at iomamerica.org. I'd love to hear from you on this. But I am going to show you today that grace did not exist in the Old Testament by word. Grace existed by life. But the word mercy got translated out, starting with the King James forward. It got translated out as grace. God is gracious. When in actuality, I'm going to show you today, it is mercy. He was revealing the Bema seat. He was revealing the mercy seat of God. God is mercy. Jesus is grace. And I'm going to show you that over the next several weeks. God is mercy. Jesus is grace. And the Holy Spirit brings it into our realm. Okay? So I know there's translations you probably have in front of you that have swapped out the term mercy for grace. It's not a wise thing to do. Okay? Mercy. There is a different definition for mercy than there is for grace. Now, if the enemy wanted to be real clever in the final days, he would want to bring back a Old Testament view of grace. What it would do is automatically delete Jesus Christ from society. That's what I believe we are faced with. True grace, our word study, grace, God's redemption at Christ's expense. That did not occur in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament was a setup for this. It was creating a gateway, a point of entrance, that passageway, that needle passageway in the cross, where as we are taken through that birthing canal, born again, that the old stays on one side of the cross and the newness of who we are in Christ is received after we get through the passageway. It's a distinct moment. It is a distinct passageway. It is a birthing process and that drives Satan crazy. So he has to work endlessly in colleges and universities and churches and books and tapes and CDs and music to completely evaporate the passageway of the cross. Why are there fewer salvations? As many of us ministers of the gospel know, there are few, 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 few salvations today compared to what we saw in the 50s. Because the law is not spoken of today. You cannot train a child up in the way you should go until you tell them what they did wrong. You can't give them grace if they don't know what they did wrong by the law of the parent. Oh, we get that for parenting. But for Christianity? Oh no, we don't want to talk about how they're a sinner. And that they're going to hell if they don't go through that tiny little hole, that eye of the needle, that you see in the cross over there, which is Jesus Christ as the passageway to salvation. Yeah, Satan has been quite clever at dissolving the gospel of Jesus Christ in this fluid nation. We are spoiled rotten. And there's other nations becoming like that. This is not just America. But God bless the nations like Nigeria, Liberia, and many others who keep the law intact of the Old Testament to help people understand if you want a different kind of living than the law, there's only one way to get to that point. And it's through that tiny little eye of a needle that is in that cross over there. That's grace. You'll find true grace after you go through that eye and not a moment before. Grace is not for the unsaved. Are, do you understand that? Or God is mocking himself. Because why would he send people to hell if he's poured grace over them? Please, gracelistic listeners, listen carefully. Grace is for born-again people. The life of Christ, if you use the term grace as the life of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, we are saved by his life, not by his death. We are saved by his life. Grace. The law is to push people. It's like a woman having contractions. It's that law. It's that pain. It's that suffering. It's to push people through the birthing canal so they come through on the other side delivered with a new life. 
So what do we do? Is we throw grace on people like it's a bucket of water. Bucket of warm water. Make them feel better because they feel guilty. Do you know how long the Holy Spirit has been working on making them feel guilty? And we're throwing buckets of grace water on them? Oh, it's okay. You'll be fine. No, they're going to hell. They can't go past go or collect $200. You just delayed 15 years of work of the Holy Spirit to have them feel guilty because they're breaking the law of God. The only way you can be delivered from the law is to get to know someone who fulfilled it. It's the only way. Because God is not going to erase His law. Our precious gracelistic listeners, do not pour grace on someone who is under conviction to be broken by God. Tell them about grace. So they want it. Well, I'm sorry. You can't have it unless you go through Jesus Christ. See that little needle eye right there? You have to you have to squeeze through there. It's an impossible thing for mankind to do without the Spirit crushing and complexing you. And then by faith, you're brought through that passage supernaturally. There are more people throwing grace around, sending people to hell than ever before. That's why we're seeing fewer salvations. The church is really in trouble. We have messed a lot of people up. We are keeping people away from their birthing passage. But thank God to his sovereign plan, he already knows that. And many times God will move someone out of a particular church and get them into a different church so that they can hear a clear gospel again. And then they get it and then they get saved. So God is going to use His divine purposes. All things work together for the good. Even if you are in a liberal church right now. Who calls himself conservative? There's no such thing as a conservative church. It's either a church that is preaching the real gospel or they're not. Here's our passage. John 1 12 through 17. The key here, right off the bat, is to receive him. To receive, it is like taking a glass of juice. And this is the illustration of Jesus and drinking it. And that juice literally becomes a part of every aspect of your mortal being. It can literally get into your cells. That's receiving. That's ingesting Christ. That is having His life become completely a part of your life. That's receiving. It's not tasting. And then He gave them the right 
to become the children of God. We cannot demand that right, push that right, preach that right. He has to give this right of access through this passage in the cross. Then there does need to be a born again experience that has to happen here. It's a moment. You see, I'm going to get some emails on this one. You didn't grow into being born. Every human that ever has been born, every human that is alive today, and every human that is going to be alive in the future is going to have a specific time on the clock when they're born. Are they not? There's no growing into becoming uh, Charles Finney's son. I was specifically born at a specific moment to receive that born again life. So all those of you believe that you grew up and you just kind of grew into Christianity, I challenge you today to pray about the defining moment of your second birth. Because God can define your first moment. Kenny the second. Now I know I've just been labeled by a few as a Baptist theologian. You can call me whatever you want. I'm just telling you, by the logic design of creation, there was a specific moment where God reached down and grabbed a fistful of red dirt. And yes, it was red. Adam means red dirt. He grabbed a fistful of red dirt and he breathed life into that dirt and all of a sudden Adam was standing in front of him. There was another specific moment where God put Adam asleep so he's laying down for his afternoon nap and God takes a rib out of his side and forms Eve. And when she took her first breath, that was her moment. Why would God do this universal growing into knowing God? I'll tell you why Satan did that. So you miss the cross. You say, well, God's into predestination. He, he knows who's going to say yes and who's going to say no. Well, yes, he does. But he is providing salvation, that pathway of the cross for all humanity. He just happens to know who's going to say no to it. So it still is your choice. This is critical, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, for I am the, I am the, I am the, see it's a personhood. So to be full of grace and truth, we are literally housing the presence of Jesus Christ. Through representation of the Holy Spirit. Providential grace, as it's spoken of out there, is, is it possible that the average believer is describing it as the threshold factor or this is, our, this is our gateway for salvation and then we leave it there? Well, what about after we're saved, after we're born again, what about how we live? Or is it just a way to describe the eye of the needle in the cross. If it is his life, every gesture of him through me is grace life. As some of my brothers out there 
and I say grace to you, which is where I get the G to you, it's the way we refer to each other. We are saying Christ's life to you. Christ's life to you back. It's a way we greet each other. I just kind of acutely turned it into G to you. So when I say to my friends, grace to you, I'm saying Jesus to you, His life imparted to you. Grace has been a much used, misused, and abused word in teaching and traditional Christian theology thinking. It has always amazed me how much self-proclaimed Christians, in quotes, can twist the meaning of one of the most powerful words in the New Testament to be defined almost opposite of God's intended meaning, almost turning it into a demonic doctrine. I mean, grace is a powerful word. To say it breaks people down, or at least it used to. God, why do you, why do you still love me when I am... Well, you see, how many times have you heard that in someone's testimony? I, I realize that he just he still loved me when I... They're speaking of grace. And it breaks them down. And that's what moves them into wanting to be with that person forever. Is this. Not Christian revisionism. Revising this word so it loses the potent value of salvation. I hate Christian revisionism. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. And when I bump into solid preachers who have been involved in Christian revisionism, and some of the, some of the things you're going to hear, if you haven't already, is pastors actually saying, we need to change with the times. We need to redo. If you ever hear a Christian leader, preacher, teacher say that, there's a different confession coming out of their mouth. That's what I believe. Christian revisionism, whether it's through word study or whether it's through theological groupings, is the most dangerous things Christians can do. I'm not updating the gospel for you emergent believers. I'm not going to do it. And I pray you preachers that are listening, do not update the gospel for your emergent followers. Do not be afraid to offend them. Maybe they need to be offended by the law so that they may discover the Spirit, the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. It's really important that we understand grace in the specific way that it is used in the New Testament Scriptures not by the emergent church of today. We need to have a new covenant understanding of grace in relation to Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. In evangelical theology today, the inadequate definitions of grace are leading to some disastrous theological perversions like law-oriented, works-oriented, performance-based Christian living, that somehow gets put into the sandwich of grace. If you listen very careful to graceholistic people, they're actually very legalistic. 
but they're using grace to make you obey. Anytime a pastor, teacher, or anyone gives you something to do to maintain what you have, they're using gracialistic theology. You see, I don't need to be motivated by you or your devotional books or your author's books or, or, or my own books or so much. I don't need... The only thing that motivates me to live life is to release the life in me and that is done through a choice within me to release the Spirit through me to live. Not to practice something. Practicing the methods of Jesus will deceive you from getting to know the real Jesus. Releasing the life of Jesus in you to do the living, you just automatically want to start following But teaching people to follow Jesus by decisions they make is gracialistic theology. There are many ministers today who are reading their emergent understandings of grace back in through their interpretations of grace or biblical theology. That's taking culture and reading it into the Bible. So you see, I'm attracted to theologians who when I walk away from those studies, I, I kind of feel the spanking. You see, it impacted me. It jolted me. It, it made me stop and go, oh yeah. I've been hanging on to some bad theology. And that's why I thank God weekly for Dr. Fowler. I have studied under some of the finest, and that is a true statement before God. But this man has cleaned up my thinking through Christ Jesus, of course, like no other. And what's the name of his ministry? Christinme.com You see, that's what it's about. And here, here I consider him one of the better thinkers in the world today, theologically. But it's simple. It's in every message. But I also understand that there are certain ministers of the gospel that need to play with words. They have more relationship with words than they do the Savior of the words. And so I have to dialogue a bit with them. The Hebrew language did not have the word grace in it. And of course we've already answered the question that earlier of why that is the case. Because Jesus is grace. So as John explained to us in our passage, that grace was realized in Jesus Christ. Grace came into being, it came to pass, it happened, it is a historical factor that this is when grace arrived. It's never left. It's gone nowhere. In order to have this grace as a part, true grace, as a part of your life, you're going to have to get this guy inside your life. And that's only going to happen by a touch of the Holy Spirit, you falling to your knees and confessing you're going to hell without Him. That you are guilty of being sin, you're guilty of choosing sin, you're guilty of functioning in sin, you're going to hell without this man of grace. I want to get through the passageway of that cross and there's no way I could be standing, repenting, crying, weeping and just exhausted in being sin and I want to get through the eye of that needle and I've got news for all of you listeners. You're not going through that eye. 
until the Spirit brings you through. So you may go through several years of this horrible feeling of wanting salvation and you're not ready. You haven't suffered enough. But no, that's not the Western thinking. We get a little suffering. We want to toss a few aspirin and get rid of that pain. Well, we're doing this same thing to ourselves spiritually. And God's the one that says, now Steve's ready. Bring him through. That's the day of my salvation. He chose it. He brings me through Christ Jesus. Brings me through that cross. That tiny little hole, needle's eye. Brings me through that cross. And it's like a snake. All my old self is not going through the cross. I don't get it on the other side. It's not going to happen. The old man, flesh, will die. I will be a brand new, born again creature. That's grace life, folks. Can't get any clearer than that. So this Hebrew word hen means something totally different than what we're used to hearing. The Hebrew word hen or hanan, which is where Hannah gets her name, which means to favor, to bestow, or to grant mercy. And then when you look up the word mercy, you'll find H-E-N. So then I thought, oh, I'm going to have some fun with this one. I'm going to take it into pictorial Hebrew. It's beyond these definitions. No offense, Dr. Fowler. But it's beyond these definitions. The Hebrew word picture for hen is mercy seat. You're standing at the mercy seat and literally by being in the presence of the one sitting in that seat, you are starting to crumble of all strength that you have got and you're being forced to confess that Jesus Christ is God. Now, you put that together with the New Testament, that the mercy seat is not grace. The mercy seat is standing before God and it's breaking you down to the point of confessing that the life of grace in Christ Jesus is truly God. Now, that is salvation. And you know Satan knows this. You know he knows it. So somehow through all these ideological theologians, they blended it. Where mercy means grace. No, it doesn't. No, we're close. King James messed up. What we find in King James is they actively swap these words out. So where you read mercy, you read grace. Some of you use Hebrew definition. We have, all of our family has a Bible that has the Hebrew dictionary and the Greek dictionary. So Janie asked me a couple days ago, she is editing one of our, our pieces, and she says, well, where did you get this, this definition? It's not matching my Hebrew definition in my Bible. And I said, honey, that's pictorial. Well, you mean this whole dictionary in my Bible, the Hebrew dictionary in my Bible, is, is not right? I said it's correct in giving you the modern Hebrew definitions. So I used that to get back into pictorial. 
Then I put all three together, pictorial, modern, and Greek. And I get standing before the mercy seat, falling to my face, and confessing. You get all three. But see, the enemy gets us all locked up in just the modern Hebrew wordage. You can't do that with the gospel. That's why I completely studied the book of Revelation through Hebrew, not Greek. God speaks Hebrew. His illustrations are Hebrew. He's pictorial Hebrew. So when God says lamp, what's he really saying? I go back to pictorial Hebrew. I go, you got to be kidding me. But we lock into the Greek. So I'm going to get a PhD in studying Greek. Mm-hmm. See, it has to be studied as a full gospel. And that's the way we need to learn today. We already talked about this point, how it is used today. Mercy is used as I will be gracious. When it's supposed to be stated, I will be merciful. To whom I will be gracious knows to whom I will be merciful. It's to whom, stay with me on this, pictorial Hebrew, to whom I allow to stand before me and feel the rhema, the mercy seat on your face. That's what it is. Certain people have been given the privilege to stand before the mercy seat of God and go through this breaking process. So when I see someone in worship and they're standing there like a cold potato, what's happened to you? You're being ushered into the rhema seat. You are being put before the presence of God inside your soul. And that hand should want to go up. The knees should want to collapse. And when we are so restrained, you kind of wonder, what would happen if that person was brazen enough to stand before the living God, the rhema seat, the mercy seat of God? Would they hold their chin up? I can tell you when it's really going to happen. When you feel the glow on your face, you won't stand. Nobody will, not even Satan. He will collapse to his knees. That's the mercy seat. So to note that God is gracious, that is true, by the way. He is very kind. He is very compassionate. But he used the Old Testament to set us up for grace. The life of Jesus Christ. So the, to differentiate the activity between the two, I think we've already made clear. Christ is gracious with me every day of my life. Same thing with you if you're born again. The reason why he is gracious with you is because he knows you're living inside of a frail temple, a human body that still has sin inside of it. He is gracious because he understands that. You're driving around something like a vehicle. You're walking around in something this temple that reminds you of sin 24 hours a day. And he understands that. But that too is a part of the gospel. There will never be spoken of the power of the cross ever again after this is all done. That the talk of that old cross will never have to be spoken of, and I don't even think it will be in our new brains. 
it will be gone. There's no purpose to speak of that old anymore on the new earth. Same thing with our human bodies. There will be no reason to talk about the way we used to be. Sometimes writers refer to the providential grace or the sustaining grace of God. Some attempt to support the idea of preordained grace. I kind of brought that up earlier. By noting that God causes the sun to rise on the evil people and the good people. And somehow they make this bridge that connects that to grace. That grace applies to everyone. That's how grace went universal. Are you with me? That's how they got it to go universal. And it worked. And there are millions and millions of people buying that lie today. Jude 1, 4. The idea of sustaining grace is is sometimes documented by the New Testament statement that in him all things hold together. It's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Well, yeah, they do. But see, if we push that into a universal thought, in him all humans are held unto him. See how easy that is? Is there a term that we use that people use the demonic doctrine is that God is in all things? But it's an actual verse, right? But what happens if you start believing God is in the chair? God is in the tree? Well, I'm going to go hug the tree for Pete's sake. Have you ever heard of tree huggers? Or I'm going to eat food that puts God in me. You say, oh, that's weird. That doesn't go on out there. Really? It's called superstition. How many of you are superstitious? That's a universalistic thought. Oh, it's everywhere. So there's no doubt about the heavenly providence, obviously, in sustaining work and life of God, since Jesus is grace. But we have to be very, very careful and how we share with people when that saving grace, that life of grace, is to be received, to become them. Now, you are grace in your identity in Christ. Here's our identity statement for today. The Greek word charis was derived from the root word char, which meant well-being, that which was pleasant and delightful. Another derivative from chara was chara, or kara, however you would uh, pronounce it. The Greek word is joy. The term we use today of charismatic, charismatic, is people who jump around on pews and, you know, they're just filled with joy. They're just zealous and... And that's where that whole idea and concept comes from. So charis or charis had a double meaning. Beauty, charm, attractiveness, that which is lovely and delightful. Secondly, the expression of kindness, favor, friendliness. This double meaning has led to many misconceptions when they are alternately applied to the New Testament usage, apart from a clear understanding of God's grace in Christ Jesus. So now that we know that Jesus is grace, 
We can embrace the truth that our bodies house the eternal life and light of grace as a real person, possessing his temple, which was chosen and ordained by his Father. So the next time you talk about grace, keep this in mind. Grace is not an action. It is a release of the life of Christ onto another through you, through his temple. That's grace. And that's why if you preach about grace, you're not going to see salvations. But if you preach about life, and that you're saved by his life, you might see something different in your ministry. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at IOMAmerica.org. That's IOMAmerica.org.